Welcome to the Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and global affairs. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. 2019 was a watershed year for the city of Hong Kong. The city's 7 million residents have been embroiled in protests since March. Protests began with the proposed extradition bill, which would have subjected the semi-autonomous residents of Hong Kong to greater control from mainland China and the Communist Party in Beijing. While the extradition bill has been withdrawn, protests this past week reached a fever pitch as students barricaded themselves in the Hong Kong Polytechnic University, resisting ever-increasing violence from riot police. As the violence continues to escalate, I was able to speak with Travis Wusso, Vice President for Public Policy at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and a contributing editor here at Providence. Travis was located just blocks from the Polytechnic University where the protests were occurring. Here is our recorded interview. Travis Wusso, thank you for joining us on the uh, Provcast. Thanks, man. It's good to be with you. Um, can you describe for us a little bit where you are in Hong Kong? Uh, you've been there uh, for several days. Kind of um, describe where in the city, uh, where in the city you're at. Yeah, so we're. Uh, right, I mean, right now I'm standing in uh, in Kowloon uh, in a neighborhood called Tsim Sha Tsui, which is um, about a third of a mile from uh, from the Hong Kong Polytechnic University. So we're, we're you know, I got a great deal on this Airbnb and, uh, you know, when we arrived, you know, sort of uh, discovered discover why that why that's the case um the the protests have sort of been all over the city but this week you know just happened to be you know, this is where uh this is where the protests have been you know particularly hot this week so um what have you seen or maybe describe the scene for us you walk out of this uh, airbnb onto the kind of city street what is the what is the air like there is there um, a sense of tension do you hear off in the distance uh, as we see a video of molotov cocktails being thrown at police and and sirens going off i mean kind of describe the scene there of um, what it's like when you walk out on the street yeah i mean I, the it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a lot of things all at the same time. You know, you have, you have expats or, or people, uh, who are Westerners, Europeans, Brits, just sort of walking to work and walking back to the Metro or to the MTR. You have, um, locals who are, um, uh, jumping in and participating in the protests as they sort of move from block to block. Um, you know, in, the, the Polytechnic University is kind of one one uh, exception to the general rule of these protests. That, that's that's one area where a group of students, you know, still Friday morning are um, hunkered down and refusing to leave. You know, it's sort of an occupy uh, kind of strategy. The, the the majority of the protests they're they're employing a strategy that they're calling moving like water, uh, and we've seen that where you're just walking down, you know, street headed to get lunch or headed to a meeting or whatever. And then, you know, sort of all of a sudden, um, a group of uh, a group of black clad masked uh, protesters, you know, sort of move onto the street and start setting up roadblocks. And, uh, you know, then the police arrive and then they move on, you know, to another, you know, to another location to sort of continue. And that's, you know, the the nature of the protest here, at least what we've seen on the street, you know, Polytechnic University is a separate sort of issue. But what we've seen, you know, their their main tactic is just to sort of create traffic uh, disruption, you know, so they'll set up these, you know, in some cases are very rudimentary, in other cases, 
very elaborate. We saw at one point they were bringing in bamboo from who knows where, and they constructed this sort of like big thatched, um, you know, roadblock that I'm sure, uh, you know, took quite some time to dissemble, uh, you know, by the police. But, but that's their objective is sort of create disruption, draw police over to an area. Um, I, you know, Monday and Tuesday, we're trying to draw police away from uh, Poly U so that they could get closer so that students could escape. Um, but, you know, it's a very fluid situation. And I would say I, I have never felt sort of personally in danger. Um, you know, even, you know, even when we, you know, a couple points were sort of in between, uh, between protesters and police. I mean, I, you know, I think as an American, it's, you know, just, you know, just based on my skin color, it's obvious that I'm not involved. You know, I'm just a bystander. So we sort of ducked into a, you know, ducked into a storefront and let things pass by. But, but I, I guess maybe to sort of sum up, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of a weird feeling um in, in a way you know i've heard a lot of people say here that you know this the the protests feel sort of long-term sustainable in a way you know that hong kong can continue to exist with this kind of disruption you know probably for some time you know where you know in general people are sort of going about their everyday lives um but you know you have a group of protesters who are, you know creating these you know creating disruptions uh, you know daily or weekly periodic sort of basis that provides a nuisance for the police. It provides embarrassment uh, for the Hong Kong government in terms of the international uh, community, because there's so much media here and, you know, and, and you do have the free, you know, the free flow of information. But, you know, it, it just struck me that the kinds of protests that we saw, I mean, the, the, the confrontation between the police and the protesters is not such that, it like must end, end this week. You know, this this could continue just like this, I think, for a long time. So you've raised an interesting point and and we'll apologize, I guess, to the listeners for the um, there's kind of some often garbled transmissions since we're we're speaking uh, over uh, thousands and thousands of miles. We're on the other side of the planet. So technology, I guess, kind of has its limits. But you, you raise a uh, an interesting kind of point that uh, many of uh, the. Um, officials in Beijing and in mainland China uh, have described these protesters as just a fringe or maybe even perhaps, you know, outside influenced uh, group of individuals. And, you know, you talk about the protesters that will just kind of show up and there are people going kind of going about their daily lives. Is there a sense of continuity um, between the people who are actually protesting and the people going on, you know, about their daily lives? Is there a greater struggle, a feeling of a greater struggle there that uh, camaraderie that might exist? Or are these protesters viewed by everybody as maybe just a nuisance or as some sort of uh, outside uh, influenced kind of group? Like what kind of uh, camaraderie maybe exists between the average Hong Konger and, and the, these protesters? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, there, there isn't really good data there. There's, there is really poor sort of notoriously poor polling in Hong Kong on public sentiments. And so, you know, both sides, you know, use statistics that are, you know, the breakdown on like an 80, 20 or 70, 30 line. Um, you know, I think those statistics are, that polling data is basically useless. Um, but I'll say anecdotally what, you know, what we saw firsthand was I'll tell maybe two stories. There, there was a sense that sort of the older generation, you know, they they weren't jumping into the middle necessarily of 
the protests. They were sort of watching, you know, the, the streets would sort of have two, two, two elements going on. One is, you know, younger, honestly, a lot of female, you know, but, but protesters in their 20s um, setting up roadblocks, uh, you know, uh, setting up umbrellas, you know, conf- you know, sort of forming a battle line um, against the police. And then along the side of the street, you'd have the people in the neighborhood, you know, the shopkeepers on that street or the people who live in the neighborhood. And this, there, there was a sort of sense that, that you know, the, the, the folks standing on the side of the road, they weren't going to jump into the middle, but they also didn't mind what was happening. You know, um, you know, they appreciated that, you know, these youngsters, as they call them, uh, were doing what they were doing. Um, you know, there there was uh, I mentioned earlier the, the large bamboo structure that they created um, when they were bringing the bamboo they, down the street. They sort of formed this like um, uh, a human chain to sort of pass it down. And there you actually had you know, I have a great photo of this of this guy uh, holding a briefcase in one hand and just you know, sort of the other hand helping to bring bamboo down the street. You know, he was just walking to work and decided he was going to jump in. So, you know, I, I do think that there. I mean, the, the, the feeling that I got is that there's a pretty high degree of solidarity, you know, even if they're not going to jump into the middle of, of the tactics that the protesters are doing. And there might be some disagreement about throwing Molotov cocktails and those sorts of things. But I don't sense here, you know, a sharp divide. You know, I wish these youngsters weren't doing what they're doing. I wish these protesters would just stop. I think there there's a general sense that something needs to be done and an appreciation that these protesters seem to be having some kind of impact in terms, in terms of drawing international attention here and getting and getting local attention of politicians to create an, an unsustainable political situation that, that might provoke change. So you brought up uh, international attention uh, just this week while you've been gone. The Hong Kong um, Human Rights and Democracy Act was passed by the Senate, which uh, will go and be reconciled with a bill from the House. And if uh, President Trump signs it, uh, will put, uh, you know, severe, you know, restrictions and, and I guess, um, uh, continual monitoring um, and uh, frequent monitoring of the situation in Hong Kong and the government there to potentially apply some international pressure on uh, this, uh, what Hong Kong is a major financial hub of uh, the world. I think it's the uh, f- uh, fourth largest stock market in the world. It's a, a major uh, kind of economic center for um, China. So you know, you're talking about kind of um, some international attention. Then you also have the United Nations that has um, basically called on the protesters at Polytechnic to kind of stand down. So you have kind of a mix uh, between uh, the international community and the United States. What is the perception, even if it isn't kind of anecdotally, uh, that you've seen uh, from people there in Hong Kong of how they're being viewed internationally? Do they feel that uh, the United States is an ally? Do they feel like um, they have a, uh, a kindred spirit when they look to the United States? Um, we've seen pictures and watched videos of people singing the national anthem or waving American flags while they're protesting. What is the kind of perception of the United States um, on the ground there? Do they feel like the U.S. is behind them or um, kind of what's your sense there of, of how the United States is perceived? Yeah, it's, I would say that a number of the a number of the um, kind of younger generation uh, folks who we met with, protest leaders, uh, we met with Joshua Wong and and Tommy Chong and a, and a few other uh, younger protesters, you know, as well as did you know kind of a number of kind of like man on the street kind of conversations. And I think I, th- I think there 
there's probably some unrealistic expectations on behalf of Hong Kongers about what the United States is really going to do. Um, you know, and and what the impact of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act will ultimately be. You know, it is true that the bill provides some new tools for the State Department to provide sanctions. You know, more cynical view is that, it, you know, the State Department could have already done everything that, you know, the administration could have already done everything that's in that bill. Um, you know, I do think that the annual certification is is something new and, and interesting. It provides you know a new date on the calendar that that around which outside activists can can coordinate some activities because you know now every year the, the State Department has to certify that uh, Hong Kong is still operating under the one country two systems model and that therefore this you know this city. Uh, or special administrative region, you know, is is uh, deserves the special relationship that it has with the United States, and that and that is significant. Um, it's a significant piece of leverage over Beijing, and so I, you know, I, I do think the bill, um, you know, the bill is really important. If if you know, if only for you know that sort of moral um, moral significance, but I I think more broadly, um, you know, the idea that. <laughs> You know, the idea that the U.S. is going to step into the middle of the situation or has enough leverage to really uh, change the game here um, is, you know, I, I worry that those expectations are, are too high. You know, it's just taking two of the two of the demands that the protesters are making. One is a, a, a commission of inquiry uh, into police brutality. Well, the U U.S., you know, this week, Secretary Pompeo um, announced support for that. That's our official line here is that we, you know, we are, we support that. We ask for it. I think there's a sense here that it's inevitable. It'll probably happen too late. Um, you know, it probably won't happen until next year. Um, but there's a sense that that will happen. And, the, you know, and the other more, more fundamental issue is, you know, is the issue of democracy. Um, you know, Hong Kong does not elect their chief executive. Directly, it's not you know universal suffrage, one man, one vote. Um, you know the the basic law sets up a a a a sort of complicated way that the chief executive is elected, the way that the legislative council is elected. That that means that Beijing will always have more influence here, or always have a you know a I mean a, a thumb on the scale is the phrase that's coming to mind, but it's quite a, it's it's a lot more than that actually. Um, well, the U.S. has been asking for that for decades now, um, and you know, ultimately it's up to Beijing. And so, you know, I think in the middle of a trade war, in the middle of all of the other issues that we have with China right now that more directly impact our interests, I just am not sure that democracy for Hong Kong is going to rise high enough on our priority list uh, for us to do something meaningful about it, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, it's, it's, I think, uh, sad that that is the case. Uh, but, um, I definitely would agree with your assessment. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about um, the religious angle there in Hong Kong. Uh, you, you are the vice president there at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and uh, you know, obviously keep a, um, a close eye on religious persecution across the globe and religious, international religious freedom. And uh, it's estimated, I think, around 11 percent of um, uh, citizens in Hong Kong are Christians. Uh, so definitely a, a minority, but obviously because of the basic law and because of some of the freedoms there, maybe a little bit, uh, they have a little bit more freedom and um, 
uh, ability to kind of exercise their religion than exists in mainland uh, China. You know, uh, conversations that you've had, uh, what is the uh, individual that you've met, what is kind of the uh, the read or the, the pulse on the, the Christian community there in Hong Kong? Do they uh, take part in these um, uh, protests? Is is there a sense in which this community, which is already, already a, a huge minority, um, that's you know, an increase in communist presence there uh, would um, uh, affect them uh, and disadvantage them. I mean, how do you describe really kind of the um, Christian mindset as best you can or there, the way that the, that community is comporting itself currently in this in this kind of time of crisis? Right. Um, I mean, there, there certainly has been a faith component or Christian component to the protests. A number of the protest leaders um, are Christians and have been explicitly connecting what they're asking for um, <clears throat> with their Christian convictions, uh, with, you know, with their theological uh, commitments. And so that, you know, there there is, you know, that stream does exist here. Um, interestingly, Beijing, you know, in both uh, Chinese language and also English language, um, you know, uh, I was going to say publications, but really it's just propaganda, um, have been playing that up, you know, as a way of of asserting that uh, these protests are really part of the fifth column, it's foreign influence, um, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, Hong, Christian Hong Kongers really do have strong religious freedom protections here. You know, this, this, it's a very pluralistic society of, you know, every major world religion, uh, exists here and, um, you know, and from the conversations that we've had, that religious freedom is relatively secure. I would say also Hong Kongers recognize that that's unique, that within, you know, there, there's a huge contrast in terms of religious, uh, religious exercise, uh, here in Hong Kong versus the mainland. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that's part of what is, you know, one, one way of, one way of explaining what's happening here in terms of these protests is obviously what sparked it was the extradition bill. But I think a, a, a you know, to sort of take a step back and look at the bigger picture, I think most Hong Kongers are looking at what, looking at the direction that President Xi is taking China and are much more concerned about the direction that things are headed than they were maybe 20 years ago, or certainly were in 1997, when it seemed inevitable that China was opening up, that China was, was you know, maybe two steps forward, one step back, but things were getting better. You know, I think there, there, is, a, there is a sense that if, Hong, if, if the situation in Hong Kong becomes one country, one system, that that one system will be communist China, and that's really bad. Uh, for Hong Kongers on a range of issues, democracy, but, re- you know, religious exercise is certainly a part of that. Is there a sense, uh, I mean, can you describe, I guess, for us, the um, the difference between uh, the experience of Christians on the mainland and Hong Kong? You know, you said that Hong Kong has, uh, Christians there have a greater level of autonomy and freedom uh, of expression, um, but you, uh, I'm assuming, uh, 
have, have been to mainland China or have engaged in conversation with, with, with people there and with Christians there. And we see in the West, and it's often reported either by Providence or many other outlets of churches that are bulldozed down and, you know, bonfires of Bibles and pr- pastors that are imprisoned. Like, I mean, obviously it's, it's um, uh, far stricter, far more limited in terms of uh, religious freedom, if, even, if you can even call it that on mainland China. I mean, what is, what is kind of the, the, continuity between those two communities of, of the Christians in Hong Kong and Christian in the mainland? Um, is there communication between the two? Is there, um, how does one view the other, if you can shed any light on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there there's a strong connection between Christians here and, uh, and Christians in the mainland. Um, I mean, whether it's you know, family ties, economic ties, um, or, you know, even ministry ties. I mean, there, there are a number of pastors here who have ministries in the mainland who support pastors in mainland China, work with them, you know, develop them, encourage them, support them, and, and so on. Um, you know, to your, to your larger point, I mean, there, there is not religious freedom in China. Um, uh, and, 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 and there really is here. I mean, I, I think, it's, you know, I've, I've sort of asked, you know, a number of questions around the edges, you know, because, you know, because the line is, well, you know, we have perfect religious freedom here, everything is great. It's like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk about, you know, how, how easy is it for churches to build, uh, you know, to build new buildings or, or all, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, there's this sort of normal regulatory interference that, you know, that, that happens. But, um, you know, the sense I get is that every, you know, every religion here is, you know, is really given, you know, free access to the public square. And I'm, I'm sure that you can find some examples around the edges, but I, I've been surprised by how robust things are here. You know, compared to mainland China, your exists, you know, your, your experience as a, as a Christian in mainland China is going to depend on where you are. It's going to depend on how on the radar you are. Um, but in principle, there is no religious freedom because all religious exercise exists under the authority of the Communist Party of China. Um, whether that is, you know, in the case of the Catholic Church recently, even their bishops are appointed by uh, by the CCP. But the three self movement churches, you know, exist, you know, under indirect control uh, of the CCP. If you're an underground church, you know, you're you are, you know, which a lot of evangelical churches are, you know, you exist explicitly without the sanction of the government, which means that the government can come arrest you, shut you down really at any point. Um they wouldn't even need pretext to do it. And we've, we have seen more and more of that, uh, you know, since 2016. Well, I would say kind of 2012, 2013 is, is when things really started to shift here. But that, you know, that process has accelerated in the last uh, in the last few years. And so, you know, again, I mean, going back to your, the question you just asked a minute ago, I think Hong Kongers are very aware of what's going on in mainland China. And they were very worried that increased interference from Beijing inside, you know, on, you know, within Hong Kong means all of that stuff comes with it in terms of, uh, in terms of control over their churches and so on. So you said earlier, uh, just kind of to tie a couple themes together, that there is a sense in which you feel that the the level of disruption that's currently um, going on with the protests in Hong Kong could, could go on for quite some time, uh, you know, maybe uh, with, a certain amount of um, coexistence with uh, people who are just getting about their daily lives in, in Hong Kong. But if we look at, at, at a calendar, right, and we we kind of project out into uh, the future in, in 2049, so just really 
not 20 years long from now. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, uh, that is when the kind of basic law that was uh, agreed upon when the, um, lease was up, uh, the Great Britain turned uh, Hong Kong back over to China. There's this 50-year agreement saying, you know, there's going to be one country but two systems and Hong Kong is going to be semi-autonomous, all of that. All of that sunsets and ends in, in, in 2049. So, I mean, everybody has this this ticking clock, right? This 60-minute, like, you know, tick, tick, tick that's coming out in the future, no matter how hard we kind of fight, no matter how much we protest, there's this day coming where, you know, the communists are, are going to roll in and drive over this new, you know, bridge and tunnel into Hong Kong, and we're never going to get rid of them. It, so the the question can I, that I want to ask, if you can kind of step back, do you see these protests? Is this is this the Alamo, you know, for them, or is this Berlin? Right? Is, is there a sense in which this is the last stand? You know, Polytechnic, uh, the protests in Hong Kong. This is just the, you know, do or die. We're going to just. Uh, stand in the streets and if if we die we'll die with our boots on and and you know um they um china may still prevail but we're gonna we're gonna take the last fight or is there a sense uh, that you think in which, you know, if we can just hold out, if we can just continue to protest, there's going to be a day when the wall will crumble, when, you know, um, freedom will out. Uh, I mean, what's kind of what's your sense of this struggle? Uh, what what as you look into the future and, and you talk to people there, what what is their sense of, of uh, where they're at in this moment in time? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really interesting question. And the answer that you would get from people here is going to, you know, to depend real and in some ways just generationally. You know, there are a number of the youngsters here who, you know, are very critical of the generation that negotiated the 1997 um, agreement and the and the 1984 ag- agreement before then, you know, and sort of asking, well, what did you think was going to happen in 2047? You know, you made a deal with communist China. And I think in fairness, in fairness to those politicians who are a part of that, you know, that process that have sort of brought us in, you know, we're now 20 in the 23rd year of that agreement of that 50 year agreement. I think there, there is a, there was a sense in 97 that at the, the speed at which China was changing, you know, granted Tiananmen Square had happened, you know, eight years earlier, but the, but the speed at which China was changing, um, it wouldn't matter. It would be okay. You know, or, or the 50 years would be, you know, would be extended, you know, in, in other words, 2047 as a deadline would never really come. Um, either because China and Hong Kong had become the same sort of place or because China determined, you know, it's, it's too valuable for us to, 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 you know, to keep one country, two systems. And, you know, so let's, you know, let's, you know, let's give it another 50 years. Right. I think if you are a, a young Hong Konger who does not have an American or Canadian or European passport, this is your home, you know, and, and your future exists here. Um, I think that's where you're seeing some of the anger and the desperation about where things are headed, you know? Um, um, and, you know, so you're, you know, to your question, is this the Alamo? You know, it's interesting, you know, a, a number of, um, when, when we talked with some of the protest leaders and, and said, you know, sort of probe them on their tactics, you know, like, what's your long term strategy here? I mean, how, you know, you can't hold Polytechnic University forever. You know, I mean, you're going to lose that. 
you know, eventually you're, you're going to have to leave. <laughs> and a lot of them really describe what they're doing in the context of the American Revolution. You know, say, well, you know, George Washington only won two battles. Um, you know, you guys were, you know, you guys were massively outnumbered during the, you know, during the American Revolution, but you still won anyway. Um, and so I think they're, you know, you know, there's there's a little bit of magical thinking uh, going on here, particular, you know, with among the protesters. But you know, I mean, the you know the other side of that is that's how history changes. You know, sometimes it changes against you know against a lot. So um, you know, 28 years is still a long way away. I think all protesters here, you know, and and all Hong Kongers want democracy. They want to sort of change the equation or, or, um, you know, or restore, uh, one country, two systems, uh, in a way that, you know, Beijing has already been violating, violating that, um, uh, that framework with, in terms of more and more interference. But, um, you know, but, you know, again, I mean, I, I think probably the right answer to your question is this is more like the Berlin wall. You know, I, I do think, there, there's a strong possibility that this kind of protest activity really is a new normal for Hong Kong, um, and uh, you know, and and it will persist until Beijing um, is willing to concede to some of these, you know, to some of the demands that are made by the protesters, particularly around democracy. And looking at this situation in November of 2019, it's pretty difficult to see how Beijing will ever agree to that. So, Travis, you wrote for us um, at ProvidenceMag.com this last January, an article entitled, First They Came for the First Amendment. And uh, you've got a a line in there that I wanted to kind of read back to you and and maybe get some perspective since we're almost done with uh, 2019. Uh, You wrote, confronting China on its human rights abuses will require individual members of the international community to take risks and demonstrate that the principles laid out in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights are worth defending and advocating for. Uh, This next year will be a crucial test of the international community's resolve to do so in the face of an ascendant and emboldened China regime. Um, So we are almost done with this year, and and we never probably could have predicted uh, the level of protests and what would be going on in in Hong Kong. Uh, You know, the traveling that you've done in China, the conversations that you've had there, how do you think the international community is passing this test? How do you think... um, what future do you think there is there in terms of uh, international support uh, for human rights there in China? Um, kind of what's your assessments if you were going to grade the year? How has this year uh, gone? Well, I, I do think that the United States and our Western allies in terms of values have woken up this year to what China is really up to and what their, you know, what their long-term aspirations are and how those aspirations will impact the international order. I think there has been a, a, a waking up to uh, what we're dealing with um, in China. I, I will say, I don't think that there is a good answer to how do we, you know, how did, how does the United States and our allies, how do we, um, organize and coordinate and band together really to confront China on, on, uh, you know, on, on this plane. Um, I think the, you know, the Western response has been, has been piecemeal. And if you're just looking at the facts on the ground, you still have 
um, over a million, according to New York Times document, amazing document done um, a week ago, Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. You know, a year later, it's it's you know virtually nothing has changed, and so you know to to the extent that that is the test of of um, how things are going, um, you know, I mean, one of the greatest human rights abuses um, on the planet today, you know, possibly you know generational human rights abuse. Um, th- that situation is totally unchanged, you know. So, you know, I I. I, I would say, you know, to answer your question directly, I would say it's not been a good year. You know, we haven't seen, you know, the the sort of, you know, rapid mobilization to, you know, to stand up and confront China, to, 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 you know, to pool together um, our leverage and um, and uh, and uh, really stand against what China is doing on a, you know, on a human rights and moral plane. But I, I think looking at, you know, looking at how, um, you know, ter- when, when I'm meeting with diplomats from Western countries, whether, you know, here or in the U.S. or in, you know, in Geneva or New York or wherever, I think they're, they're, the, the mood of the conversation is a lot different than it was a year ago or a year and a half ago. I think, I think most countries are recognizing now more fully what we're dealing with. And so I think, you know, again, I mean, it, you know, it's, maybe we kick the, you know, kick the question down. Uh, down the path for a year, um, and we'll see what 2020 holds for us. Well, Travis, thank you for uh, your time. Thank you for uh, speaking to us uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, Travis Wusso is the Vice President of Public Policy and General Counsel at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and a contributing editor, Providence. Thank you, Travis, uh, for joining us. Good to be with you, Drew. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.